Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Wednesday morning, the 9th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The government plan to spend some 8 billion euro retrofitting homes with a target of 500,000 homes having a B2 energy rating by 2030 was, as you know, launched yesterday. Today we're taking another important step forward. We are supporting people to action themselves, to take actions themselves, to upgrade their homes and to move away from expensive polluting fossil fuels and we will support them in doing that. The package of measures announced today will deliver warmer, healthier and more comfortable homes with much reduced energy bills. It will reduce emissions of greenhouse gases and will improve air quality. The government contention is that while the investment is significant, the return will be a win-win situation for everybody involved. I think it's going to be good for the economy, uh, creating jobs all over the country. It'll be good in terms of climate action, reducing the amount of energy we use. Uh, will be good in terms of public health. Uh, we shouldn't underestimate the value uh, that warmer homes and well-insulated well homes have uh, in terms of uh, improving people's health. The scale of the challenge involved in all of this is truly monumental. In the next three decades, we have one and a half million Irish homes that need to change their heating system. We need to get move, removed from the oil and gas-fired boilers to new heat pump systems that are a better technology. They're a better way of heating our homes. And at the same time, we need to insulate that home so the cost comes down, you use very little electricity, and you get the benefit of all the efficiencies that new system bring. It's a better home as an outcome. It's healthier. It's cheaper to run. It's, it's lower emissions. Helps us meet all our environmental targets. We have to do this. That's the leaders of uh, the three government coalition parties, Eamon Ryan, the leader of uh, the Green Party, the Thonish Leo Radker and uh, the Taoiseach Micheál Martin. Let's speak uh, to the chair of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on the Environment and Climate Action, Brian Ledden, who is uh, the Green Party's spokesperson on climate action and uh, the environment. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. There's no doubting the level of ambition in this plan. How achievable is it, do you think? Good morning, Michael, and good morning to all the listeners there as well. Uh, it's certainly a very ambitious plan. Uh, I do think it's achievable. What we're talking about here is uh, a real significant scaling up of the ambition, uh, and probably it's the first time 
uh, that the, the state uh, has taken uh, retrofitting uh, and energy efficiency in homes seriously. So it's sending a signal now, a very, very strong signal uh, to the market and to the industry that 8 billion euros is going to be invested in this in, in the next number of years. Uh, so I think the, the, the industry will respond. Uh, and what we'll see is levers uh, opting to get into this sector now because they'll see a viable career in it and we'll see people transitioning from other sectors uh, into retribution as well because they will see the opportunities in it. Okay, and uh, there'll be great opportunity for those who can afford a full deep retrofit, uh, 25,000 uh, with uh, matching funding by way of a, a grant or thereabouts. Uh, and a, a lot of people uh, undoubtedly would be very anxious to take uh, that uh, up if it's possible for them to do so. Not everybody will be, but there's uh, much smaller grants available for those who are, aren't in that position. Yeah, indeed. There's the single measure grant uh, from uh, about 3,000 euros uh, right up for all the various measures. Uh, so, for example, you might just want to uh, replace some windows or you might want to do the cavity insulation or the attic insulation. So there's just smaller grants for those. Uh, and some of those are quite generous. With the state is funding up to 80% of the cost of a lot of those measures. So for those people who uh, don't have the, the capital to do the deeper retrofit, uh, it's certainly an option for them uh, to do uh, this in a step-by-step process. All right, and all of the grants are on the SSIA website at uh, the moment. Uh, when will people be able to apply for these grants? Yeah, they're all on the SEAI website and the website crashed last night um, because there was so much interest in it, I believe. Uh, but uh, it's in the next couple of uh, weeks, the one-stop shop to be set up. So the one-stop shop is essentially... Uh, 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 it could be, it's a private company essentially that the the homeowner, the person who wants to do the retrofit, can go to, and they will organise everything uh, around that retrofit, from the planning uh, to the procurement and so on. Uh, they will be registered in, in the next few weeks. But I would encourage mm-hmm. your listeners to go onto the SEAI website, have a look at what's there. There's there's the uh, the home energy upgrade scheme, which is the principal scheme that, that I think most listeners would be interested in, but there's also the, the warmer home scheme for those who uh, are on lower incomes. Uh, yeah, and that's actually 100% upgrade uh, for, for those people. So if you're on CARES or, or, or the disability allowance um, and, and some other payments as well, uh, you can apply for uh, 100% upgrade as well through the SCAI website. Okay, and what would you get for that? Pardon? What will you get? Uh, the 100% upgrade. Uh, what 100% what, what upgrade, does that mean in effect? It's a deep retrofit. So it, it, That's the f- full 50,000, 60,000 yeah. retrofit. Yeah, well, it's the it's the state stepping in there and doing mm. a full uh, upgrade for, for people on low incomes. Uh, and how many people will be able to avail of that? Yeah, I don't have the figures to hand on the... Uh, I, I know that they were ramping up from, uh, I think it's less than about 150 a month currently to 400 per month uh, so you're because in the first year you're talking about a few thousand and then that's going to ramp up uh, over the course of the decade Okay, uh, and so the one-stop shops uh, you say uh, that they'll be announced in uh, the coming weeks uh, where is that at the moment is that a, a process of negotiating with private contractors uh, because people will look at what will be available to them but it's not available to them yet yeah the one-stop shop um, basically these contractors uh, are tendering for to be a one-stop shop uh, and that process has been ongoing 
uh, already, so that's nearly ready. So in the next few weeks, uh, those will be uh, those will be up and running. So, um, yeah, yeah that, that's the answer, Michael. In the next few weeks, the okay. And, and um, you've got to get to that stage first, uh, and then uh, when they're up and running, uh, when will people be able? Uh, to hope to get the work done. I'm sure there'll be a surge uh, and huge demand to begin with. Uh, so it could be a couple of years, I take it, before people will actually see works completed in their houses. No, I don't think so. I mean, between once you've gone to the one-stop shop and you've availed uh, of, of what they're offering, uh, and then the planning process uh, takes place, where you're talking about four to eight weeks to, to get all of that done, and then uh, works obviously... Um, Depending on lead-in time for materials, like windows, for example, can take anything up to eight to twelve weeks. But you're talking about getting the whole thing done in in a number of months. Mm. Um, that's uh, depending on demand and depending on uh, the capacity of uh, the system to meet that demand, and if there's uh, enough people to do the work, let alone the materials. Yeah, indeed, and and also every home is different, you know. So every every home has to be planned, uh, but it does depend, obviously, on the ramping up of the sector and that has to happen uh, and we do see this uh, ramping up basically in the next number of years. This isn't something that the government aims to fix overnight nor is it something that can do. It's, like, it's a very, very significant amount of work. Uh, it does require uh, a significant number of people to get into this and what really happened yesterday is that very strong signal has been sent uh, such that we know that for the next it's not just the next decade, it's the next three decades uh, there's going to be a very vibrant retrofitting industry in Ireland. So I, I know people will be eager to get going on this, uh, but this is a multi-annual plan to get our building stock uh, into that uh, energy efficient uh, space where it needs to be for, mm. very, for very many reasons, energy security, as much as uh, as much as climate reasons, as much as uh, lowering mm. energy costs, and that's it. Given the scale of it, people are going to have to wait, aren't they? I mean, it may take four, six, eight weeks for those at uh, the top of the queue, but uh, there'll be others uh, who'll be waiting longer, uh, given the amount of homes uh, that it's hoped uh, to retrofit. Uh, just to give listeners an overview, there'll be grants for heat pump central heating for those heat pumps, heat pump air to air heating controls, solar hot water attic insulation rafter insulation, cavity wall insulation, internal insulation or dry lining, external wall insulation or the wrap, windows, a complete upgrade, two external doors, floor insulation, solar PV, mechanical ventilation, air tightness, uh, which would seal your house. Uh, And then there's work such as uh, lagging jackets, draft proofing uh, and energy efficient lighting. Uh, What happens in terms of claiming the grant? Do you spend the money and then claim it back or do you get the money before you spend uh, on uh, the products that you're buying? It's all done through the the one-stop shop. So the old system was that you would apply uh, you would pay all the money up front and then you would get the money back once the, the works are finished. And this, uh, because the state is funding up to 50% uh, of the cost via the, the one-stop shop, uh, you only have to have the net amount. So you will you will put up the, the half the cost, essentially. That's for the deeper retrofit. Uh, and then for the single measure grants, um, the you will have to put up the the full cost and then as I understand it you, you reclaim the 80% um, I think it's 80% in most of the single measure grants uh, 
that have been offered for the, the heat pumps, the cavity insulation, uh, the, and so on. Okay. Uh, if um, you'd go for the full uh, retrofit, the full deep fit, uh, spend 25000 or thereabouts, uh, and uh, the government matches that by way of a, a grant, uh, you're talking about an investment of fifty, sixty thousand 60,000 euro into a house. Uh, that would be very attractive for those who can afford it because it'll obviously uh, put greater value on the property itself. But it would also give uh, the opportunity for landlords to increase rents, won't it? Well, the landlords aren't excluded from the scheme. Like, and we do need to get all the housing stock in the, in the country up to an efficient standard for uh, all those good reasons that I mentioned. Um, landlords obviously will be incentivized to do this because they they operate in a competitive market. Now, it's, you could argue it's not very competitive at the moment, but in the long term, a landlord will look at this. Uh, I would say that uh, it's an investment in, in the in the home, uh, they, their property is going to be more attractive to your tenants if it's a, if it's a B or an A rating mm. uh, versus, say, an S or a G rating. Uh, and that's the, the market that uh, is there. Um, so, obviously, the, the landlord is going to be able to ask for a higher rent if he's offering It could be very attractive for landlords, really, in that sense, uh, because there will be low interest loans available uh, on uh, the portion that you or the landlord's house owner uh, uh, invests as well, won't there? Yeah, the the low interest Mm. loan uh, coupled with the the grants from the government uh, will probably make it very attractive for, I think, most people who certainly start to look at it now. Uh, and I'd, con- I'd say that they will consider this kind of work in uh, certainly the next few months or the next few years. The low interest mm-hmm. loan uh, option, basically, this is going to come in the autumn uh, of this year. So these are uh, stage-backed loans. We expect them to come in as around three, three and a half percent. I understand. Uh, uh, so that's so essentially between the low interest loan uh, and the grant, uh, the the and and the savings basically the savings that uh, the, the homeowner makes from the energy uh, okay. retrofit and their energy bills mm. uh, is going to essentially pay back the, the, the loan that they take out. Okay, so if you take the grant of 25000 borrow the other 25000 and pay that 25000 back at uh, an interest rate of 3% and increase the rent by 1000 a month, which would be 12000 a year, it would be profitable, wouldn't it, to get this work done? Should be increased, so that, Michael. Uh, oh, sorry, uh, you're saying the rents would be increased. Um, yeah, by a thousand a month, uh, twelve thousand a year. Uh, that that would make it very profitable for landlords, wouldn't it? Well, it, this isn't at all about making it profitable for landlords. This whole scheme is. is no, but there's legitimate concerns uh, that landlords may take advantage of uh, the scheme, and it may uh, actually uh, add to the homeless problem. I think if, you're, if we're in a situation where there's a shortage of housing supply, which there is, mm. uh, and there is a plan to uh, to solve that, the Housing for All plan, and actually one of the, the aspects of the Housing for All plan is to require landlords to do this. So all landlords, uh, essentially across the state uh, from 2025, are going to have to uh, have, uh, uh, have an, an, a, a DCD2 um, uh, house. So... Landlords are, uh, there's no two ways about this. Every home, every building in the state mm. 
uh, has to be upgraded, and that's rental properties, private properties, uh, social and public housing mm. as well. Okay, but uh, it could pay landlords <laughs> to uh, improve uh, their property and increase the value of their property. It could pay them in a greater yield in terms of what the house demands in rent. It depends on the situation. Um, yeah, but, but, but you accept the situation that I'm putting to you, 25,000 in a grant, 25,000 of a loan, 3% interest rate, uh, and increase the rent by 1,000 a month, 12,000 a year. Uh, that's going to pay the landlord uh, to do pretty much nothing themselves, with no investment as such themselves, uh, to add value to their property. It's a win-win deal, isn't it? Not, I mean, you're talking about increasing the rents and, and the property by a thousand a month like that. That is absolutely extortionate. I don't think that's a, a realistic scenario. And every uh, town, every village, every city is different. There's different markets, there's different demand and different supply. But to simplify it like that, I don't think is uh, is the right thing to do. Well, it's uh, just one example. We could have said 500 or 1,500 because of rent pressure zones. Landlords have been complaining that they haven't been able to uh, increase rents. So it gives them that opportunity, does it not? There's an opportunity there and there has to be an opportunity for landlords as much as um, as private homeowners and uh, and for the, the social and public housing staff that all the, the buildings uh, essentially in the country need to be upgraded to that B2 standard or else we're simply not going to meet our climate targets. Mm. If landlords avail of these grants though, should there be a prohibition on them increasing uh, the rent as a result of it? Uh, I think it's definitely something to look at. We we want a fair uh, rental market. That's that's absolutely true and I think uh, if it is a situation that there is abuse of the system uh, then obviously that has to be looked at. Okay, uh, and in terms of recruiting, uh, it's unknown, isn't it, really, as to whether there will be the workforce in place uh, to carry out uh, the work. The hope is that there will be. The drive is on uh, to get people into apprenticeships and uh, to upskill and so forth. Uh, but that really is a big task uh, at hand for everybody involved. It's a huge task, uh, and as I said a few minutes ago, this, you know, this is a really strong signal to the sector. Uh, that uh, multiple billions of euros are going to be invested in it in the next uh, number of years. Uh, so that signal, like, we haven't had that before. Uh, so mm. I think what you will see is you'll see, uh, as I said, school leavers uh, getting into this. You'll, you'll see those apprenticeships being taken up. You'll see uh, in people who are in other sectors uh, transitioning over. Uh, and you'll probably see people coming to Ireland to do this kind of work as well. Uh, so we have to get to about, I think, 17 or 20,000 uh, people in this sector to do the work, and that that is a very significant number of people. Um, it simply has to be done. You know, there, there's, there, whatever way you cut this, uh, we have to do this work, uh, and, and that's why the government has launched such an ambitious scheme. Okay, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Brian Ledden is uh, the Green Party's spokesperson on climate action and uh, the environment and uh, the chair of the Oireachtas Committee that looks at the environment and climate action. 
Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the report uh, from Northern Ireland's police ombudsman, Mary Anderson, is shocking by any standards. It talks of a litany of collusive behaviours between police in Northern Ireland and loyalist paramilitaries as uh, the paramilitaries engaged in a murderous campaign against Catholics uh, during the 1990s. The police, she said, were of significant, guilty of significant investigative and intelligence failures in relation to 11 loyalist murders and several attempted murders by the UDA and the UFF. Uh, these included the attack on Sean Graham bookmakers on the Ormo Road on the 5th of February 1992. Billy McManus was there. He arrived at the scene and helped uh, to carry some of the injured into the ambulances. And uh, a very good morning to you, Billy, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, there were nine injured. Five people died in that attack and your father was one of them. When did you realise that that was the case? Morning, Michael. Um I actually found out as soon as I got there because when I run up to Sean Green's big me, my uh, my uncle was lying outside with being injured in the stomach. He was shot and he told me to get into my father. Um, once I tried to get in, there was a big man standing at the door and he wasn't letting anyone. Um, but what I know now was a undercover uh, British officer. His other partner was inside picking up cartridges from the guns and that was at five minutes just after the atrocity had happened How did they get so there I, so quickly? Well we believe now um, that they were across the street watching it <laughs> that was um, part of an undercover operation hmm. that's what we believe Yeah Right uh, and uh, there's uh, obvious collusion uh, in uh, the Ombudsman's report uh, and uh, that would feed into that theory. Oh, there's, yeah, 100% collusion. Marie Anderson's hands are tied by legal reasons, legal reasons by saying collusive behaviour. That's just because of a court case in 2020. So there's collusion the whole way through Shongreens. The guns that was used to kill my father were, one was stolen from a UDR barracks. The other one was imported by Ken Bart, an agent of the state. And then, within an hour, Spicer Branch knew the names of the three people who carried out the atrocity. Uh, why was your father killed, do you think? My father was killed just because he was a, a Roman Catholic, and that's what lawyers paramilitaries were doing at the time. They were systematically just killing everybody because... Uh, they thought was part of what they were doing was right but she was totally wrong mm. and for no other reason he had no political involvement no involvement with the paramilitaries no. and the same with everybody no. in the bookies at the time nobody, no, nobody in Sean Graham's even the injured had any political none of them was involved in any paramilitary organisation like Jack Duffin was 66 and the youngest was a child James Kennedy was only 15 it was we call it slaughter of the innocent, but there's lots of families in the same boat as me. No reason, just because you were a Catholic and they thought you were the enemy. Hmm. Uh, and uh, whilst uh, the British state may have not pulled the trigger, uh, they supplied the gun. Well, I have done a, I done a march called Time for Truth, and I said, loyalist paramilitaries pointed a gun 
but it was the British government that pulled the trigger. Okay. Mm. Because these were being protected by the state. They were allowed to come into areas, kill people, and leave without being checked. And now, in this, to support, she is saying there's eight known loyalists who were agents of the state. And we have worked it out that the three that carried out Sean Green's bootmakers was part of that eight. And not only can we identify the eight kill- the three killers, we can an- identify the, eight, the agents' handlers in Spicer Branch. So it, it's very, very hard to take. Mm. It's very, very it's hurtful. But now it has turned to anger because not only was in our report that it was 11 murders and one attempted at murder, it has now jumped to 25 murders and one attempted murder. So what were they up? To? What were they doing? Or how many people did they kill? Uh, and um, the reason for this uh, was intelligence uh, information being given to the special branch, was it? Well, what they were saying was, listen, it, you have to be very careful when you're reading the thing because the way they worded it's they were supposed to be working for Spicer Branch and and stopping these atrocities. This is what they're saying, but they just stepped over the lane, and instead of stopping them, they participated in them. So instead of arresting them, they just let them carry on because they were working for them. But it led to just it just led to murder. So it, it doesn't wash anymore, and it's every report that comes out, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And it's not just in Belfast; it's in the six counties of the north that they were doing this to people. So they. They can't justify it. They try, but they can't. Uh, and uh, can uh, the RUC officers be identified? I'm sure. Sure, when legal teams get together, they can. But they've just closed. The, they've just closed the door. They're they're protecting each other. Um, in my father's case, they deliberately destroyed evidence that would have convicted these killers. Um, it's just been a, such a struggle to get to where we are now. Like they're deliberately destroying evidence that had that would have convicted killers. It totally goes against everything a police officer should be doing. Well, and that's course, how hard it's yeah, been. Yeah. When evidence is there to mm. convict people, and then the next one it disappears. That's what happened. Like in 1982, when the gun was found at the Speedhead 58, we had a HET report that said it was disposed of. So that was one of the questions we answered, asked Michael McGuire. Where has that gun gone to? And we finally found out that it was in the Imperial War Machine in London on display. This is a gun that committed five mur- that caused the five murders of my father and four other people. It wasn't even forensically tested against any other murders. They just shipped it out of the country. That's that's how rotten it is. Hmm. Yeah. Um was this a good week or a bad week for you and your family? Well, it's been a very, a very stressing couple of days mm. because, as you know, the 30 years was on Saturday and we had a great turnout and we grieved for our loved ones and we, we, I thought we were, my, my community came together. Like, there was people from Sligo came up, from down from Donegal, families from Kerry came up. It was like, they all, it was a good day for remembering our loved ones. Mm. But then on Monday we had to face up to this when we got the report that it was it was just collusion the whole way through it mm. straight up like, 
But but you've always known that, have you not? Or that's always uh, been your sense no, of, of things. No, no, we have known. We have known from we have known from day one mm. that there was collusion mm. when witnesses were identifying the killers, but the killers weren't being charged. And then when they did charge people with it, the, the charges were dropped. Um, people were being intimidated. Mm. Witnesses were being intimidated by giving their names and addresses to loyalist the loyalist killers, mm. and it was just just been a, a long, long road. Our report's been denied four times mm. because of stuff that we found out. Thirty years um, on, though, you're uh, yeah, you're, thirty years you're, on, the you're, lifetime. You're vindicated, uh, and uh, as terrible as it is, the official report from and the ombudsman is that that is what happened. Uh, what do you hope uh, to stem from this? Uh, can it lead to charges? Well, that's what we're hoping. With the report on the disclosure we got in the civil case, um, our legal team is going to be working to see if there's any any chances of getting the case reopened. And I hope to be speaking to Marie Anderson and Simon Byrne. And if I get a chance to ask Simon Byrne, I want to ask him personally, is the son of of my father was murdered? I want to ask him personally, will he reopen the case? And is there any chance? Um, If you were of a legal background, you can cross the T's and dot the I's and you can get the names of the killers, but you can only go to court if there's evidence that they convict you. Being put into the paper won't get them convicted. So there's still another struggle of getting them into court, but that's the future. We haven't, we are not giving up. This is his first part of the jigsaw. We want to, we've got a report, we know what happened, and mm-hmm. I just go after them. Do you need to talk to Brandon Lewis or Boris Johnson for that matter? Because uh, oh, you, you can only take somebody to court if it's possible to charge them. If oh, there's a, an amnesty, <laughs> that won't be possible. Well, I, I've been to London in the last year three times to fight this amnesty. I mm. have walked up the tent down the street and wrapped the door and given a, a ladder of petition. Um, mm. Yes, the amnesty, um, the amnesty means we will, nobody will get truth. Mm. Especially you and Dublin bombing families I know I've been down to meet them mm. years ago. Uh, they'll never find out who killed their loved mm. ones and it, it will just close the door on and everybody it, trying to face for justice. And it's very different uh, with... Uh the Dublin Monaghan bombings uh, with Bally Murphy uh, with Bloody Sunday uh, and you know the British government makes this argument that uh, it, it may never be possible to bring somebody to justice at this stage when crimes were committed 50 years ago and before that uh, but in your case 30 years ago it, it, there is quite a possibility I take it uh, that people are still alive and uh, that charges could be successfully brought against them Oh yes the, the people who killed my father are still alive um, they're still getting on with their lives, enjoying Christmases and doing whatever they do. Um, it's just, yes, people who medicate, committed these atrocities in Bloody Sunday and Bala Murphy and McGurk's Bar and Oma Bauman and all, all people may be dead, but let me tell you, the three people who were involved in my father's murder are quite alive. Okay. All right. Well, hopefully this uh, will uh, give uh, some assistance uh, to you and uh, the other families uh, uh, in terms of achieving justice, uh, the justice uh, you've been campaigning for for 30 years. Uh, Thanks for joining us this morning, Billy. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much indeed. Billy McManus, uh, his dad, Willie, was one of uh, the five who was killed in Sean Graham's Brookmakers in 1992. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. I was reading a, a story uh, in uh, the Irish Times uh, the other day. It really was a, a gory story of a farmer in Leitrim, Liam Gilligan, who discovered uh, that 25 of his sheep had been mauled to death by two pet dogs. Uh, this was on St. Stephen's Day. Uh, He said uh, he'll never forget uh, the bloody mess of dead and dying animals torn apart at such a degree that uh, a body count was hard to carry out. Uh, He said, with their heads gone and their ears torn off, it was impossible to locate the tags. Uh, It was 25 out of a a flock of 65. Uh, Liam said he was lucky, though, because uh, he got there and the two dogs were still on the scene and they were put down with... uh, the owner's uh, blessing for that two Staffordshire Bull Terriers. Uh, the owner took responsibility and uh, Liam said that the dogs would have finished off the other 40 sheep uh, had he not uh, arrived. And to see the state of the animals uh, was unreal. Uh, their heads and faces. He says he never came across a scene like that before. Really horrible, horrible story. Uh, and it's not uncommon. Uh, let's uh, speak uh, to Kevin Comiskey, uh, the National Sheep, Sheep Chairman for the Irish Farmers Association. Good morning to you, Kevin. Thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. You're calling for stronger legislation a year on from a campaign uh, that you launched uh, on front of this kind of common occurrence uh, and uh, the Minister uh, asked to do more in terms of no dogs allowed. Uh, good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Uh, that's right. It's, it's, uh, we launched the campaign there about 12 months ago, and indeed we relaunched it again yesterday. Um, to highlight the likes of this incident, which you, you described there in detail uh, of the farmer in Leitrim, Liam Gilligan, uh, a colleague of mine that I know well in the IFA also, um, are horrific, horrific uh, incidents for, for any farmer to have to go out and, and see his livestock and his livelihood uh, savaged in, in that way. And uh, look, at it's, it's happening right across the country. Since I became chairman there, I'm getting calls from right across the country. For, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, that's where we're coming from. Um, and even the recent court case there in, in uh, Galway highlighted the, the deficiencies, you know, in, in the current legislation uh, for the enforcement and, and the whole thing around responsible dog control. Yeah, and it's pet dogs that are usually responsible for this. They're not wild dogs. There's not many wild dogs in the country these days anyway. Ah, no, there's, look, there's very few. It is mm. it, it is the, the pet dog, and I suppose that's the feeling out there. My pet won't do that. Mm. And, you know, the pet is uh, when he's lying at the fire and he's grand and everything, but when he gets out, and it, you can't blame the dog really either, Michael. You know, it's, yeah. it's the natural instinct. You know what I mean? It's mm. It's... It's the natural instinct of the dog to hunt and to kill, and and that's where we are coming from responsibility. And and uh, you know the farmers, as we mentioned there about the tags and everything, the mm. farmers has to be responsible. There's over eight million cattle has to be tagged and identified, and and uh, over three million sheep, and that wouldn't be even including the lambs that will be born this time of the year. Mm. I so, don't I don't envy Liam coming across that scene or having to clean up that scene or deal with that scene or deal with the authorities in terms of uh, the disposal of uh, the carcasses or dealing with uh, the sheep who survived it or anything like that. Uh, it must have been terrible. Uh, but then there's the impact on his livelihood uh, as well as everything else. Uh, is there insurance for dog attacks? Well, there, it's very hard for a farmer to get personal insurer or li- uh, insured. You can get it, but it's... it's uh it's like put it in the put it in this context, Michael. If you were in a flood zone, it's very hard to get insurance. 
and it's nearly in the same context as that because it's very hard to get insurance cover because they know that it could happen, the insurance companies know that it could happen at any stage to any farmer and the liability and the risk is high. Mm. So if you get do get it, it's at a high cost. Mm. And, um, and especially if the animal hasn't been born yet uh, because we're coming into the lambing season. Well, that's right, and it's hard to know, estimate, you know, you will be doing scanning and everything, but the the impact on the yews and all that that was killed and everything, and as Liam said to me, he won't realise the full cost, uh, you know, until, we'll say, August, July, August, when he'd be going and selling his lambs, and that's when it would really hit hit home, you know, the full cost of the lambs that's lost. You'll have yews that, that wasn't uh, killed will will more than likely abort, you know, they'll lose the lambs. Mm. Um, older generation of people will tell us down through the years that, that if sheep is attacked like that you're nearly better just sell them off and, and start a new flock again they never never thrive right or do anything you know for you properly mm. well there's no sense to it um, no no, uh, no sense to it and no, I suppose from you see no. you can shoot the dogs uh, but that's usually too late um, and nobody would blame you for doing that. Uh, we can ask people to keep their dogs under control, um, but you've been asking them for years to do that, and uh, it continues. You can't even get insured against it. It's so commonplace because so few people do it. So what do you want the minister to do? Well, indeed, we at our AGM, there was a statement from the minister and that he's going to look at this. Uh, minister Heather Humphreys and Minister McConnell was out on a farm that morning of our AGM, and... Um, they are going to look at it and, and bring in uh, enforcement. What we want is a single national database, as I said about recording our animals. Uh, that's what we want for the dogs. And we want tougher sanctions for non-compliance with this. Um, at the moment, there's no penalty. A dog warden told me that there's no penalty for even if you haven't your dog microchipped. So there's on-the-spot fines has to be uh, significantly increased and then um, the enforcement of it as well, the, the local authorities and all that has to get uh, substantial funding or adequate funding there to for the dog wardens to go out and monitor these dogs and check on the licences and check where they are. And along then as well, what we'd be seeing along on hills and walkways and that, where there's tourism as well, people and holiday homes, and, you know, that sort of thing. People come with dogs walking out and, and let them off the leads and all that. And that's totally unacceptable as well. There has to be, you know, more responsibility all along that line. And that's where we were coming with absolutely no dogs allowed is, is the only way we could go forward. OK, well, hopefully we'll he- people will hear that message or some people will hear that message. Uh, Kevin, we have to leave there for the moment. Thank you, though, for joining us this morning. Kevin Comiskey is the IFA's National Sheep Chairman. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Some calls uh, or texts, uh, one from an angry listener in Navin who says, retrofit, people can't afford to put food on the table. Talk, talk, smokescreen, says our angry listener. In Navin, Eric Dundalk says about sheep kills, uh, the government should give a grant to farmers to erect secure fencing in order to protect their sheep. This would save the problems. No dogs or hungry foxes should be harmed in any way. Thanks, Eric. I suppose uh, the argument the farmers is making is uh, that they wouldn't have to shoot the dogs if the dogs were kept under control as you're obliged to do by law. Uh, Margaret Navin says uh, she was listening to the discussion yesterday on uh, the programme about same-sex schools and co-ed schools and she agrees uh, with the listener who was in touch yesterday about free choice. She says every school has its good and bad points but if you want to send your child to a single-sex school 
for whatever the reason is, surely you should have that as an option. Thank you for that. Uh, another call uh, to us uh, then uh, this morning about retrofitting uh, from Declan, who's in Drogheda. Declan says, I was, I was sceptical about how affordable all of this was going to be, but it seems like there's also smaller options available, like insulating your attic or replacing doors and windows. And he says that's all positive. He says, I'm not sure how many people on low income will be able to afford the deep retrofit in its entirety, but he says uh, it looks like it is a good initiative. Well, thank you indeed, uh, Declan, for your call to the programme. And speaking of value for money, let's uh, talk about value for some 368000 €547. This is uh, the amount of money that was spent on an ad between creating the ad and then the cost of airing the ad. Uh, It is the Crashed Lives Road Safety campaign ad. A very good ad, I think a lot of people would have thought. I'd imagine Susan Gray, uh, who's the chairperson of the Park Road Safety Group, would have thought it it was a good ad. Uh, She's on the line. Good morning to you, Susan. Thanks indeed for joining us. Did you think it was a good ad? Yes, yep, uh, yeah, yeah. send out uh, a clear message and yep. educated the, the public. And about unaccompanied clear, yeah, yeah, and drivers. Yeah, and send a clear message yeah, to yeah. unaccompanied yeah. learners. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and, and, then, and then you wondered what happened to it. Uh, Catherine Murphy, uh, the Social Democrat TD, asked uh, about that because it was taken off the air uh, despite uh, this cost of nearly €370,000 all told. Yeah, um, the RSA contacted us in 2018. They wanted uh, one of our members, Noah Clancy, to take part in this ad. Now, you can imagine how upsetting it was for Noel to do it and go back to the night and go to the scene and all, but he did it with the main aim that it would save lives and it would educate people and send out a clear message. And um, he did it. Now, it was aired. Um, it was we realised it was taken off the airways on the beginning of February, and we wondered why. So uh, we couldn't get any answers directly from the road safety authorities. So yet again, we had to uh, go down the parliamentary question with. Catherine Murphy raised it for us um, recently. Mm. Just uh, remind us who Noel Clancy is because uh, he lost his wife and his daughter, didn't he? Yeah, in 2015. Mm. Tell us about Christmas time. uh, His uh, wife, Geraldine, and his 22-year-old daughter, Louise. And he came on the crash scene. So... It was horrific for Noel, but... Um, and they were knocked down by an unaccompanied learner? No, no. They were driving their own car. Oh, sorry. An unaccompanied mm. learner crashed yeah. them too. Beg your pardon, yes. Oh, yeah. My memory fails me. So, yeah. um, mm. they both died at the scene. So, Noel uh, agreed to do this ad, mm. and uh, we wanted to know why it was discontinued. It was only on the airways for about six weeks. So Catherine Murphy um, asked the question and it was sent to the RSA. And they replied a few days ago saying that um, we want to know how much it costs the taxpayers to do this ad, to produce it, and then to have it in their national airways. How long exactly did it uh, get aired? 
when um, why it was stopped to give a reason because at the time when it was um, stopped um, the RSA did say to the media that they were not stopping it it sent out a clear message and it was a great road safety campaign and they had all intentions to continue it but we waited and waited and never came back in the airways mm. so um, they confirmed last week that to Catherine Murphy that the ad cost uh, I can confirm that the cost to produce that was 270000 I don't think that includes VAT. Mm. The cost to have that for broadcast was 198547 mm. So if you include VAT, you're talking about 500000 Michael. Mm. The, air, the ad was aired from December the 21st, 2018 to the 4th of February, 2019. The reason the ad was discontinued is a matter between the RSA and the parties involved in the ad. End of. Hmm. And one of uh, the parties involved in the ad obviously was Noel Clancy, uh, uh, who lost his wife and his daughter in that terrible um, crash. Um, Was he consulted? He continually asked. Right. Hmm. Um, No official. We've never got an official reason and this is a taxpayer's money that they've spent 500,000 plus um, it's very worrying that mm. uh, they haven't even replaced it with uh, another ad we don't see any ads out there for learner drivers we don't see much of a message being sent out the Christmas um, campaign that the RSA and the Gardaí did uh, at the beginning or the end of November they did say they were targeting um, drinking drug drivers drivers not wearing their seatbelt using the mobile phone while driving and they said they'd be doing ads to make learner drivers aware that mm. they had to be accompanied at all times and that if they received seven penalty points they would be disqualified for six months. We believe the, that message, a lot of learners don't realise that their threshold isn't the same as everybody else's threshold at 12 penalty points. It only takes seven. So twice caught speeding or using a mobile phone and they're practically off the road. So we waited and waited, hoping for this ad or mm. to come out over Christmas targeting the learners because well, what we see in social media Michael is the roads policing units are continually, you'll see it yourself uh, posting reports of unaccompanied learners that they're catching very very often driving yes. unaccompanied, a lot of them no tax, no insurance hmm. uh, there seem to be a lot of them seem to be that they're catching seem to be breaking a lot of rules so the message, the need to really home and, and uh, be far more proactive and educating this uh, cohort of people. Okay. Uh, some learners abide by the laws. They don't drive on a company. They always have a qualified driver. Mm. A qualified driver beside them must have a, a full license for at least two years. And... Well, we don't believe a lot of uh, yeah. that message is 
been uh, put out there. It's uh, hard to understand uh, for the sake of getting cheaper insurance, you'd imagine people would do the test and get their full licence and so on. Just to mention uh, before we finish up, Susan, uh, we did ask uh, the Road Safety Authority uh, about uh, this issue with uh, the Crash Lives advertising campaign. Uh, They haven't responded to us, uh, but if we do get a a response, uh, we'd obviously bring it uh, to you and our our listeners. Uh, As you say, around €500,000 when you add VAT to the overall bill was spent on an ad that lasted for just six weeks. It had been intended, at least that's your understanding and Noel Clancy's understanding that it would run for longer, uh, but it was pulled for some reason uh, and apparently uh, that that's a matter, as you say, between the RSA and the parties involved in the ad, and that does not include Noel Clancy, uh, who was uh, the face of the ad uh, uh, and was asked to do it because he lost his wife and daughter. Susan, we have to leave it there for the moment, but thank you as always for joining us. Susan Gray is uh, the chairperson of the Park Road Safety Group. Michael Reed on LMFM. The women of honour have displayed tremendous courage in sharing their experiences and that the matters they have raised are extremely serious. And I would also like to extend my appreciation to the men and women of honour group for coming forward to share their experiences with Minister Coveney, departmental officials and also more recently the Taoiseach. And I appreciate also the references in the motion regarding the legal and moral obligations to all members of the Defence Forces. It is for this reason that Minister Coveney is proceeding with this independent review. And my colleague has an immediate duty of of care to serving members of the Defence Forces to ensure that they carry out their duties in a workplace that is safe and that the workplace culture is underpinned by dignity and equality. And this is what the review group is currently examining and why this independent review is so important. And recent media coverage of an alleged incident last year has only reinforced thinking on this. Indeed. That's the Minister of State, Josepha Madigan, speaking to a Sinn Féin motion in the Dáil last night, uh, talking about that independent review into allegations of uh, sexual abuse and harassment in uh, the Defence Forces uh, and uh, saying... Uh, what the women didn't want to hear was uh, that the review will go ahead instead of what Sinn Féin was calling for, which was a full statutory inquiry. Let's speak uh, to Sinn Féin's spokesperson on defence, Sorka Clark, who moved uh, this uh, motion. Good morning to you, Sorka Clark, and thanks uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. No great surprise, I suppose, uh, in terms of the government's position on this. No, it wasn't really any great surprise. It was very disappointing, though, because I do believe that up until that motion or the amendment to our motion was put down, that the government had an opportunity to do the right thing here. And the right thing here, very clearly in my mind, is a statutory inquiry. Now, when um, the Minister for State there, and we do need to bear in mind, Simon Coveney wasn't in the door last night. He was actually in front of the committee Mm. to do with the foreign affairs section of his portfolio. But when the Minister said that there was um, an immediate duty of care. What people need to be aware of was that even up until December 12 months ago, the Workplace Relations Commission had ruled in favour of um, a retired member 
of the Defence Forces when it came to discrimination and um, how she was treated in terms of promotional opportunities um, when she was pregnant. Essentially, her maternity leave had been classed as the equivalent of a male officer's sick leave. And that Workplace Relations Commission, was uh, the finding of it was, was really very damning. And it did order the Defence Forces at that point to carry out and combat relate, um, pregnancy related to discri- and other forms of discrimination. And that was meant to be finished by December 2021. Now, uh, the questions that I have put to the Minister, that still hasn't been completed. So to say that there's an urgency about this now would automatically beg the question, well, why now and not previous? Because they have been aware and the government have admitted that they were aware that the policies and procedures that are in place are simply not working for members of the Defence Forces, yet that seems to be the very two top aims of what the independent review is. So essentially, the government have put in place an independent review to confirm what they already know, and that will never get to the true extent of this issue, and it falls short of what the Women of Honour were asking. And remember also... These women of honour, they never wanted to be in the public domain. They wanted to and did have faith in the structures up to a certain point. And when those structures utterly failed them, they then went on to national radio to tell of some of the most harrowing experiences in their lives. And that is what was the catalyst in this issue. And yet they have had no input into these terms of reference. And as they have said themselves, have essentially been patted on the head and told to go off about themselves. While the minister issued them with a fait complete terms of reference that were already drawn up that were already agreed and it was the only show in town at that point. Alright, uh, the Minister said that they did have input uh, in uh, drawing up the terms of reference, did she not? No, she referenced other groups. She didn't reference the Women of Honour. Hmm. I thought she spoke about the Men and Women of Honour. Which is a separate group. Oh, okay, right. And therein yeah, lies the my artist. confusion. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. No, and it's it's quite a common misconception yeah. because what we see in the media are these these very strong women, but they are the tip of the iceberg. There are so many more people behind them. They are the ones, though, that are in in front line of of the media, as such, and are, are the ones who will do um, um, represent a group that are behind them as well. And also something to remember: like, there's no compelability with this review that mm. the government have put forward. Which so it, any findings that it comes out with will be solely based on goodwill yeah. and on the voluntary interactions of people. So whatever their findings are, the Women of Honour was very clear on this. They will not get to the full extent. They will not give a true prick picture. So in six, nine, twelve months' time, we are going to be back having the exact same conversations yeah. because while well, the government's amendment does say they may do a further body of mm. work. There has been no commitment okay. to doing a further body All right. of work. All right, I was going to come to that. Uh, the difference uh, between the two uh, inquiries, if you like, uh, this review that's taking place and a statutory inquiry is that the statutory inquiry that you're looking for would be able to subpoena people and would also be able to demand documentation or other evidence uh, that it required. This review uh, is to produce an interim report within six months and a final report within 12 months. Uh, and at that time, uh, when it does produce its final report, report, uh, the government may or may not, as you say, uh, decide to go uh, for a full-on inquiry. Exactly. And you do need to remember as well, like it was in the early 2000s that Dr Tom Clonan reproduced his report 
that he had carried out at that time. And the findings of that in itself at that point, 20 years ago, were absolutely damning. And that didn't lead to the systemic change that's needed because there, we do have a moral responsibility. This is probably about the only common ground that we share with the government on this. There is a moral responsibility to ensure that those who serve the state, who protect us and others, are themselves protected. And unfortunately, Ireland isn't alone in this scenario. We have seen military Me Too movements across the world, whether it's Canada, the UK, America, New Zealand. But we do need to establish a process that is first off fit for purpose but secondly it doesn't involve repercussions after somebody makes a complaint because what that does is it essentially silences people it stops people from coming forward to utilise a system that is meant to be there to right a wrong if they think that they will face repercussions be that personal repercussions or career prospect repercussions for engaging in that very system and that there's a, there's a level of wrong in that that needs to be called out for what it is and it is simply just not acceptable. All right. Uh, the Minister did uh, mention all of those countries that you spoke about there where they've also had problems in Canada, the UK and USA and said that the terms of reference were based on the experiences there and that the AG, the Attorney General, also gave advice to the Minister on drawing up the terms, as did the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. I'm glad you brought up the Attorney General there because I had asked um, the Minister Coveney of the settlements that have already been made by the government and the Department of Defence with previous serving members or current serving members, how many of them actually included non-disclosure agreements as part of that settlement? And where did those people fit in in this review? A non-disclosure agreement is essentially a gagging order. That person can never speak of those incidents or that case again. So if there is no mechanism there to engage with this review for those individuals, well, automatically you are ruling out a group of people who have been wronged. It has been established that it has, has, they have been wronged and the state has paid them contributions or, or, um, or compensation for that wrong and yet they will feature nowhere in this review and it's another example of how it's just not fit for purpose. Okay, as you say, Simon Coveney uh, was talking to the Oireachtas Committee uh, about uh, photographs to do with Champagne Gate uh, and other matters uh, uh, and uh, there were two ministers deputising for him uh, Josepha Madigan, uh, who we heard a moment ago and also Jack Chambers, but both ministers were I thought interestingly saying uh, that uh, those who had complaints uh, that uh, they believe uh, that there was a criminal action taken uh, against them, that they could make those complaints to Angarda Shia Khanna uh, because the women themselves had been complaining that they shouldn't be investigated by the military police. What do you make of that? I think you need to look at the defence forces as as what it is. And it isn't a working environment that the vast majority of us would be familiar with. It's a working environment where we train our members and they know this and they this to a command structure. So if it is a case that you have a commanding officer that tells you to do something, you do it without question. And that is proper and right in a military setting. So where a member of Defence Forces does not feel heard by their commanding officer, to then say to them, you can go to the Gardaí. Well, we know they can go to the Gardaí, but to some people's mind, that would be actually going outside the chain of command and, and breaking that command structure that's there. Treacherous? You were correct. 
but they were correct when they said that the Garda Siakana are there and for anybody who's experienced mm. abuse like the highlighted by the Women of Honour please do reach out for support and for those particularly who may be in their past today this has been in the media for so long mm. now at this point and it will continue to be because I understand the Women of Honour are meeting with the President this morning the, um, that may be um, that may lead to a reoccurrence of previous trauma for people so if there is anybody listening who has these incidents in their mm. past and they are feeling slightly vulnerable reach out there is support there and it is important that you you scaffold your supports around you at a difficult time like this are, are you so saying the though that it, the training in the defence forces is such that it would almost seem treacherous uh, to members to take a complaint to the guardee no, I don't like that word treasure. Okay. I don't think that's an mm. appropriate word to use in this in this instance. The but it disloyal. is the nature of the disloyal. Possibly, but it is it is it is the nature of the workplace, and it is the nature mm. for anybody who serves in in a military or in our defence forces that the command structure is is front and centre, and it seems a little bit. Um, it seems like it, it's not truly understanding first off the workplace that these individuals are in the nature of that command structure to, to, to flippantly say sure can't you go and have a conversation with a guard but we know that but it doesn't reflect and it certainly shouldn't be used as a way to take away the experiences mm. of what these people is have Is that part of the problem? Is uh, their insular thinking uh, and whilst there may be times that that is appropriate uh, because of uh, the security that you associate uh, to the Defence Forces. Surely as an employee in a workplace situation, uh, there shouldn't be insular thinking that uh, we should have all the same kind of basic human rights that you have the right not to be groped or assaulted. You do absolutely have the right. And I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that this is a problem. It is um, It is simply the work environment and the nature of that command structure that, that's, that's there. But what it does do is it brings another dynamic to the to issues and the complaints and the allegations that people have made. Because where you have um, somebody who is um, abusing others or behaving in, in a predatory manner, it is most likely also that if they happen to be in authority that they will use their authority to either further compel the abuse or the harassment that they are undertaking themselves or to act in a coercive manner that ceases to silence the person who is being abused. Mm. And there is, a, there is, there's, there's a level of depravity to that that needs to be rooted out of any and all workplaces and across society. The doll has debated at length um, gender-based violence, domestic mm-hmm. abuse against and by women and against and by mm. men at length at this stage. And we know it is systemic in Irish society and we also know, and this is internationally known, that that abuse is worse in areas that are more reliant on power structures. Mm. Authority gives sort of uh, the scope to abuse people, yeah. whether it's in the priesthood, uh, a school teacher, a swimming coach, or indeed uh, somebody of a higher rank in the defence forces. And it is why in scenarios and in, in situations like that, those who are involved in all of those um, arenas that you mentioned there do need to, they, they, they do need structures that work and structures that are fit for purpose for where they are working or where they are in recreational activities. We've seen huge moves across the rest of society in terms of child protection policies. They, they have worked very well in some cases. Other cases, they have brought to light previous and maybe what would be, would be said to be historic um, issues of concern. But if you start from a place of, of wanting to ensure 
that the system of complaints of writing it wrong is fit for purpose for the entity itself, well then what you will see at the other end are, are, are serving members of the Defence Forces, for example, or, or anybody else in that environment confident in the complaint structure that's in place. And that's what's really key here, is that the system itself, it, they, they, those who need it and those who may want to avail of it can have confidence in it that there will be no repercussions for them personally or in relation to their career or other opportunities if they engage in it. Okay. As you say, the Women of Honour will uh, take uh, their case uh, to President Hickens uh, this morning and undoubtedly will keep uh, this issue to the fore uh, as uh, your motion did last night uh, and uh, we leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. That's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on defence Sorka Clark who's a TD for Longford and Westmeath. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, if uh, you're in Dublin uh, this morning and anywhere near Kildare Street, uh, you might be wondering why there's uh, people hanging around wearing giant red love hearts. Uh, written on these love hearts is hashtag love not hate. Uh, and uh, it's part of a campaign, members of the Irish Network Against Racism, that's INAR, and uh, the Coalition Against Hate Crime are gathering on Kildare Street to hand a petition into Leinster House. Some 15,000 signatures will be given uh, to the Minister of Justice asking Helen McEntee to pass the hate crime bill into law. Let's speak to Netson Nagoma, who is uh, the Network and Communications Manager with INR. A very good morning to you, Netson. Thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, and uh, indeed, uh, I'm sure uh, there's a number of people there with you who are passing this message on to the Minister. What uh, would you hope to change in in this country by the introduction of this legislation? Uh, hello. Um, so exactly what we're trying to do is we're just trying to put forward like uh, hate crime legislation, which is just uh, basically whenever we have a crime, they recognize that there is a hate element in it. And we do believe that when we do implement, uh, when we do implement the hate crime law, it's going to like go a long way in protecting people that do feel uh, is going to go a long way into protecting people that are targeted or that are victims of hate crimes because, like, unlike regular crimes, when it comes to hate crimes, this is these are more or less a crime on a community. All right, uh, uh, it's a standalone crime. Uh, and one one example, perhaps, Edson, is uh, that if you box somebody in the face, that's a crime. It's a, a assault. But if you do it for a racist reason, uh, it could be seen as two separate crimes: uh, assault and a hate crime. Exactly. So what? Exactly. So it's uh, exactly that because if you punch somebody in the face, uh, as in a standalone crime, that's a crime. But then if you punch them specifically because of their identity, then that's a hate crime. So we're pushing for legislation that does recognize that hate element to it because that is an attack on somebody's identity and that does have a ripple effect in community, especially amongst people that have that identity. Okay, and can it be extended out past physical crimes? Uh, I mean, could it be something that somebody is saying about you on the internet? Uh, So, of course, the internet sometimes does get a bit tricky, uh, but then we have to look at uh, more or less uh, issues of harassment. So what we're looking at now are things that are already a crime, Mm. but then they're, they're having that crime that's being done to them with a hate element to it. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily like bringing in new crimes, but it's a crime that all, that's already exists, but then we're recognizing that hate element to it. So we're just trying to recognize that because at the moment Ireland does not have a crime that recognizes doesn't does not have a legislation that does recognize that. Yeah, is that unusual? Uh, is it recognized elsewhere? 
Oh yeah, uh, it is recognized in other countries, uh, but at the moment there, there is like a hate crime bill that is like uh, making its way through the houses. So hopefully, Ireland should uh, should be able to have it along the time, and hopefully, with this love not hate campaign, we should have like a, a hate crime law. Okay, do we need hate crime laws? Uh, I would say absolutely, um, because the problem is is if you attack somebody because of their identity, it's not only attacking that one particular person. It also it also like sends a message to people from that particular community who are also afraid because it's like if they attack this person because of their identity, mm. what protects me from not facing the same crime? Mm. So I think if you have this law that's going to put in that's going to put in place in place tools that where the guardy and uh, and the and the and the judiciary have the explicit, explicit tools to help like fight to help like fight these crimes and so they have the tools to respond to these accordingly it's going to send a clear message and provide some protection to it and mm. of course it's not like a silver bullet for addressing racism mm. but it just goes a long way into providing the steps or it's one of the many measures that can be put in place so that people that are from these affected communities can feel safe can feel protected and that the people that do enforce these laws have the specific tools to handle these things responsibly. Mm. I suppose some people are, are, are just angry and you'll always hear people say um, I, I don't know what uh, I did to him but I was under attack he just attacked me uh, out of the blue for no reason at all I never did anything on that person uh, is that the type of thing uh, that people experience and then uh, end up wondering uh, if there is no reason uh, was it to do with my colour uh, my race my religion my um, by ethnicity or whatever the case may be. Yes, of of course, those are like uh, those are the things that we, we are trying to like address. Because if you do attack somebody based on their on their ethnicity, that even even our, even researchers that the psychological impact of that is like way more massive. It's bigger than what we can say a regular crime because mm. you are you are attempting to violate a crucial part of their identity, and that's mm. like a core part of their being, mm. and. I think if we go ahead and then we do legislate something that does protect this and that does provide some support and does provide some infrastructure that uh, uh, that does help like the people that enforce these laws to have some protection, yeah. have some understanding of what it's about, I think that goes along. Okay, but I suppose most of us try to stay out of trouble and we don't want to get attacked and uh, we do whatever we can. Uh, to uh, protect yourselves in that sense. But if you're getting attacked, let's say, because of your skin colour, it's not something that you can change. Uh, So you're always at fault in the eyes of the attacker and you're always at risk. That's a horrible way to live. Oh, yeah. No, no, that's a really horrible way to live. And it's it's really sad that uh, that these things happen. Uh, But, yeah, it's it's really sad that these things happen. And even when... Uh, and even when we look at uh, the way the cases, uh, the way the cases of like racism, racism and racist incidents are happening, uh, as seen through our I report system, we are seeing that a lot of people that have, that, that do come and report the, that do come and report the racist incidents to us, they do like share the same sentiment that they do feel disillusioned. That okay, uh, what can be done? Because yeah. it was like there was nothing that I did, but I'm facing all of this discrimination, yeah. all of all of these violations of my rights. And 
and then we do and then we do say that yeah of mm. course this hate crime legislation won't go along won't be like the be it and end all of the whole thing mm. but it does provide uh, what we say at least some protection to it and is yeah. one of the rapid changes that are needed it's crazy uh, yeah. it's uh, it's just cra- i mean there's an element of madness to it why somebody would uh, attack a, another human being uh, when they've had no inter- they don't know them they've had no interaction with them they look at them and they come to some sort of judgment and you'd have to assume that there's an element of madness uh, involved in that uh, and that perhaps that that should be looked at uh, as well what is the motivation of these attackers what's wrong with them do they need psychiatric treatment Yes, um, I think things like that can be looked at uh, things like that can be looked at but it also it is also important to like uh, to recognize uh, a lot of like internalized biases that people do go through, and it's also important to recognize that we we need to respond like uh, we need to respond like aptly and appropriately, which is what the hate crime which is what the hate crime regulation can do to ensure that even when these people come forward, for the people that they even like inflict this damage on, all right, there is at least like some uh, some appropriate response that does also send a message to not only the people that are going to be able that mm. were like uh, maybe going to like um, that were going to like maybe inflict that pain on other people, mm. but also the people that are affected by it, so that they know that okay, the state does recognize my rights. They do recognize me being here. They do recognize that I'm valued despite the community that I'm from. Uh, and in a sense, that's why we are pushing for legislation like this. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, we could lock them up in prison and uh, that perhaps uh, wouldn't be a, a bad thing. I just wonder, uh, would uh, we be better off if uh, we sent them to psychiatric institutions and, and tried to, to fix whatever is wrong with these people? Uh, but yeah, I guess. But then that also depends on like... Um, uh, but that also depends on like uh, what has been determined as the motivation for the whole mm. thing. Mm. Because I think sometimes it's also important to not just like narrow it down to psychiatric reasons, mm. because then that might also give like license to some people that are virtualists or that are extremely biased or that mm. have internalized this bias to come out and say, okay, uh, we did this, but then we are blaming this on this uh, psychiatric problem because some people are, are virtualists and do. Uh, do have this understanding of racial hierarchies or mm. or do have this uh, despicable understanding of people of other uh, sexual orientations as well as people that are coming from other communities. So I think, of course, that's, that is an important take, but it's also important to understand it as a larger systemic issue that mm. needs to be addressed. Yeah, well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> It's beyond me, Nelson, to be honest. It really is. I mean, God love them. I mean, they they have they've a, a, a nothing to be worried about or a lot to be worried about or, or whatever it is. Uh, but there's uh, definitely uh, something uh, amiss uh, with uh, people who pick on other people or attack other people uh, because of differences between them and other people. Uh, and maybe it's some sort of inferiority complex. I, I don't know what it is. Uh, but uh, hopefully the minister will uh, accept your petition uh, in the spirit uh, that you're giving it, which is uh, with those red love hearts uh, and uh, the message of love, not hate. Thanks for joining us this morning, by the way. Thank you very much. Thank you indeed. Netson Nagoma, uh, who is uh, the Network and Communications Manager with INAR. That's the Irish Network Against Racism. Michael Reed on LMFM. We spend an awful lot of money on providing health services in this country. This year alone, some 21 billion euro will be spent 
on health services, but of that, just 5.5% uh, will go into mental health services. That figure of 5.5% of the overall budget for health compares to 10% in the UK and Canada, 13.5% in Norway and 15% in France. The Irish Medical Organisation was in front of the Oireachtas Subcommittee on Mental Health yesterday and it said that there is a consultant recruitment and retention crisis that fed into the Kerry CAMS review and highlighted the key role of the consultant clinical lead in ensuring uh, quality of care and how that care is not there uh, when you don't have the consultants and to sort of give it an indication of how deep that crisis is. They said that there were pay cuts in 2012 that led to a shortage and that there is 136 out of 485 consultant psychiatry posts in this country which are unfilled or filled on a temporary locum basis. Let's hear more. Professor Matthew Sadler, a consultant psychiatrist and former president of the IMO, is on the line. And a very good morning to you, Professor Sadler. Thank you indeed uh, for joining good us morning. on the programme. If you don't have the people, you can't carry out the work. I suppose it's as simple as that. Absolutely. Um, we are facing into a significant crisis in consultant recruitment, which has all stemmed back from, <coughs> as you said, the pay cut introduced in 2012. We, even prior to that, we had difficulties in recruiting consultants and retaining them based on working conditions and a couple of other factors. But since then, the situation has got worse. And for good quality patient care, what you need is senior clinical leadership. And if, as you said correctly, if you don't have the people there, well, you know, you have a massive deficit and you have a problem in delivering a service. And what happened in Kerry uh, was clear to some extent. Uh, children suffered uh, because uh, they were assessed by somebody who wasn't qualified to uh, assess uh, their needs. And uh, the drugs prescribed uh, were at times wrong. Not only was uh, there somebody in a position like that who wasn't qualified to do the work, but they weren't overseen by somebody who was qualified. Well, I think the issue is more the oversight than, you know, most of, as anybody who's been to a hospital knows, you know, we have junior doctors and consultants and junior doctors are at different stages of training. Some junior doctors will be a consultant, you know, the next day. So they're very senior. Some junior doctors, you know, came out of medical school, you know, the day before. So the key is to have deliver a quality service is that those junior doctors have supervision and they have direct supervision by highly trained specialists with them and that seems to have been one of the major deficits that happened in in our recent crisis and um, the problem there is that if you have locum provision and you know a lot of the locum doctors who fill posts are excellent doctors but the problem is they're there for short term they are looking for their own permanent place they aren't able to develop the structures aren't able to build a team because you know, they're not going to be there for the long term. So to, in order to develop and deliver a proper quality service, you need proper permanent consultant staff. And in order to do that, there are a couple of measures that we've been asking for many years to help us to recruit better staff. Mm. Better pay, obviously. Well, the pay issue, and the pay issue is, is mm. as much about prestige and the fact that, you know, you are working with the same caseload, the same responsibility with somebody who's on 30% more than you just because of the time that they were appointed. Mm. But we're also looking for issues like the majority of the workforce in medicine now, and specifically in psychiatry, the majority are female. And what we are looking for is better family-friendly policies and family-friendly policies that, you know, ensure quality of patient care. 
you know, so mm. that if somebody wants to take additional leave, that there is an ability to have that other time covered. We are also asking for a review of the model of how mental health services are delivered in Ireland, because at the moment it is very difficult to recruit people to community-based posts rather than hospital-based posts. And this, you know, we are experts in this country yeah. of developing utopian-type health policies and strategies, whether it be launch care yeah. or Vision for Change. Vision for health. Change is uh, all about uh, community-led uh, yeah. services, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And when it comes to family-friendly policies, uh, you may get uh, some support for that, uh, but probably little sympathy in terms of uh, pay claims, because people will always say consultants are uh, a very well-paid body of people, but if they want the service, then you have to have the people in that requires the pay that's uh, for uh, people to decide themselves. But talk to me about children and the definition of a, a child, uh, because there's some confusion in the system uh, uh, about who is uh, considered to be a child, whether that's up to 16 or whether that's up to 18, and how people are treated as a consequence. Thank you for bringing that issue up. So that is a really critical issue that the IMO have been calling on for many years. There's a number of this issue that's quite legally technical, and to be honest with you, I wouldn't be the best person to talk about mm. it. But all I can say to you is that in mental health services, a child is defined as anybody under the age of 18. However, in physical health services, like a uh, you know, an emergency department, a child is anyone who's defined as being under 16. So the group of people who are 16 and 17 fall between these two stools. And so if somebody were needed to come to a general hospital to have medical care, but also with a psychiatric problem, they're stuck in this place where they're in an adult hospital if they're 16 or 17 for their physical health care. But if the adult services in that hospital, you know, try to provide service Mm. to that person, they're deemed to now be a child being treated by adult services, which is deemed to be not acceptable. But yet, in the paediatric hospital, you know, so you can see the confusion yeah. there. So what we are well, calling at, for at three o'clock in the morning when there is an emergency, somebody is suicidal and there's nowhere to go. The guards are called and the guards bring them to a hospital. Uh, well, then they could end up in an adult psychiatric unit. Absolutely, and 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 what we are kind of get very what we are calling on is that you know to stop the vilification of staff who are working to try and do their best to try and treat patients and keep people safe and sometimes the admission of that 17 year old to an adult unit if there is no bed and as we said that 17 year old will have been brought to an adult emergency department because the pediatric emergency departments don't see anybody Mm. over the age of 16. So it is that and we are calling on the health service and we have called on the health service for this for a long time you know, there's a bit of an ostrich with the head in the sand on this one, ignoring this, that they need to align all the services and have an unambiguous definition that allows us to treat people in the best way possible and offer the safest environment for them. Okay, as you say, you've been saying these things for a very long period of time. You may have people's attention uh, because of the concern following what happened in South Kerry and uh, the report there. Uh, But we leave it there for the moment. We're out of time. But thank you for your time and for joining us uh, this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Professor Matthew Sadler, consultant, psychiatrist and former president of the IMO. That's it for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning, 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.